You know, people are fascinated with life after death. Have you noticed that? The idea of life after death, it's in our movies, it's in our television shows, it's in books. You know, people want so much to know about life after death that they buy books in which people write about their supposed near-death experiences in which they claim to supposedly have died and supposedly come back to tell us about what they supposedly experienced. And you can probably tell what I think about those books by the number of times I use the word supposedly. But there is an account, there is an account in the Bible in which Jesus tells us something about this, about one man's beyond death experience and how he was forbidden to come back and tell anyone living about it. It's the account of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that the rich man, he wants to send a warning back to his brothers, but he's told you're not going to send a warning. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. And what would that result in anyway? What would it result in if the rich man sent a message back? Well, it would result in the rich man's brothers having supposed facts about the afterlife without actually going through Jesus and the gospel to get them. Not going through Jesus was the rich man's problem in the first place, you might remember. And I think that's a helpful answer to us this morning to hear that it is not God's will for us to know those things and we are not permitted to know them. What we should be doing is proclaiming to people the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it has been proclaimed to us in scriptures and compelling them to believe. As we looked at the gospel uh, a couple of weeks ago, before our Christmas series in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, uh, we're going we're gonna to read that again. Uh, I want to read this morning verses 1 to 34. Uh, we looked at those verses in detail then. We'll be focusing on 12 to 34 this morning. Listen along as I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, all of them. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection underneath him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts in Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of God. If you'd follow along in the sermon outline in your bulletin, you'll see this sermon theme. The bodily resurrection of all believers is inextricably tied to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is necessary for our salvation and for bringing about Christ's rule over his new creation kingdom so that God may be all in all. Now that's a lot in that sermon theme, and it all begins with the gospel, the resurrection that Paul proclaimed in verses 1 to 11. The gospel is Jesus Christ dead and buried, also risen and appeared. We talked about this last time. This is all according to the scriptures. So the apostles proclaimed this gospel, and so the Corinthians believed. And so Paul is shocked to hear that some in the church in Corinth say that they don't believe in the resurrection. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. I mean, you can hear Paul's shock in his response. How can you say that? 
How can you say that there is no resurrection? Now, the resurrection that some deny is the resurrection of the dead. That is the future bodily resurrection of believers after they have died. It's the resurrection of believers that will happen at the judgment day. So, they're not denying Christ's resurrection from the dead. They are denying that gospel believers will be raised from the dead bodily. Now, why would they think that? Where would they get that idea? Well, we've, we've seen a little bit of it before. We've seen it before related to sex and marriage. <clears throat> that some in the church were influenced by the stoic idea that the spirit's good, but the body's bad. The body's corrupt. We don't want bodies. We just want souls. So these Corinthians were thinking that the spirit or the soul would live on. But the body would not, and that's a good thing. It's better that way, because they've mixed in pagan philosophy. But that's not true. God created mankind, body and spirit, and we're to be body and spirit for eternity. Jesus was resurrected, body and spirit. So again, culture has creeped in to the church in Corinth and corrupted the gospel there, at least for a few, the some that say this. But you have to remember that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Remember, Paul taught us that. So, some in the church are so arrogant that they think they can devise a more spiritual afterlife than God can. But, of course, they can't. Once again, in their effort to become more spiritual than the rest, a small group has actually made things worse for themselves. In denying the resurrection of the dead, they have denied the resurrection of Christ himself, Paul says. Some want to say that Christ died and was raised, but we won't be raised. Paul's absolute emphatic response is, that's impossible. That's impossible. He says, if you are not raised, then Christ is not raised. You see, he's, he's working it in the other direction. These two things are united so tightly that if the dead in Christ are not resurrected, then it must be that Christ was not resurrected. What happened to Christ happens to those in Christ. Christ died, so we who are in Christ have died to sin. Christ was raised, so we who are in Christ shall be raised bodily just as he was. The gospel that Paul proclaimed and that the Corinthians believed, in which they stand and why bitch they are being saved, is the gospel of Christ's sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection from the dead. To separate the resurrection from the gospel is to separate those in Christ from Christ. We might expect Paul to try to convince them that Christ's resurrection yields their resurrection, but he doesn't. He goes in the opposite direction. He, hypothetically, establishes the fact that if believers are not resurrected, then Christ is not resurrected. That he, hypothetically, lists all of the terrible effects. All the terrible things that would be the result, hypothetically, if Christ was not resurrected. Pick up in verses 17 to 19. 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. These are terrible effects of denying the resurrection of Christ because you have denied the bodily resurrection of believers. Look at them. First and foremost, if the dead in Christ do not rise, then Jesus himself is not risen. You know, Paul, Paul came to Corinth, remember back in Acts chapter 18, preaching Christ crucified and risen. And not just Paul. This is the apostolic gospel. It's the apostolic gospel that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts. Remember, he's preaching to the crowds and he says, This Jesus whom you crucified and killed, God raised up. Because death could not hold him. Death could not hold him. So if Christ is not resurrected, then the apostolic gospel preaching is in vain. It's empty. Paul's gospel is useless. Verse 14. Paul could say, I might as well have been preaching or reading the yellow pages to you. Does anybody here know what the yellow pages are? You know, you know, I mean, that, that response even makes talking about reading the yellow pages even less important, right? Even more meaningless. If, if that apostolic gospel preachers, uh, if that's true that Christ is not raised from the dead, then the apostolic preachers are Liars, verse 15. Because Paul has testified that God raised Christ. And if Christ is not raised, Paul has lied about God. It's not just that he said nothing truthful about God by reading the yellow pages, but that he has misrepresented the living God to the world. So the apostles are false. Not only that, it also means that God is false. Well, how is God false? Because the gospel of the resurrection of Christ came from the scriptures. Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried. Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and appeared. We referenced the prophets and the Psalms attesting to that resurrection when we talked about this. But, but is, uh, is, if we are not raised, then Christ is not raised and the gospel is false and the scriptures are false. If Christ is not raised, it means that your faith in this resurrection-less gospel is also in vain, empty, useless. You are still in your sins and under the just wrath of God, verses 16 and 17. What would be the point of following a merely dead man? Your faith is nothing if Christ is not raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. If Christ is not resurrected, your faith is futile. Because the dead body of a condemned man cannot save you from your sin. Nor can it save anyone else. Which means that all the believing Christians you have ever known are also lost and gone forever. When Paul talks about Christians who have died, he describes them as having fallen asleep. Why? Because he knows that they will be awakened at the resurrection. And so they're only resting in Jesus until their bodily resurrection. But if Christ is not raised, then they are just 
There is nothing else for them. All those Christian burial services filled with hope of resurrection are erased and replaced with dreadful sorrow. That has to be painful for some of the Corinthians to hear. And so if it is true that Christ is not raised from the dead, it means that all who hope in the promised resurrection life to come are actually hopeless. They've been deceived and there's nothing left to do but to pity them. Why does Paul write that they are, they are most to be pitied? Have you ever wondered that? I wondered that. I had to stop and think about it for a while. Why are they most to be pitied? Surely, surely people have suffered disappointment on large scale before. Why are they most to be pitied? Because they hoped in the greatest thing. So if Christ is not raised, then theirs is the deepest disappointment. And they're most to be pitied. But Paul says to them, how can some of you say that? Is, is all of this what you meant to say when you said that the dead are not raised? Haven't you thought through this at all? How can you hear the gospel preached, believe it, and then say, Christ is not raised? Are, are these consequences that I've outlined for you, are these the consequences that you'd, you'd thought out when you said, Christ is not raised? Well, I'm sure they respond, no, well, no, we just, we just, hey, we're spiritual people, and we just wanted to be free from our bodies to really be spiritual in our, in our super spirituality. Remember how they thought they could unite their bodies to a prostitute, even though their bodies were united to Christ? Remember when Paul addressed them about that? These Corinthians have a thoughtless Christianity. These are, these are not thoughtful Christians. And Paul shows us how dangerous being a thoughtful Christian can be. You can think your way right out of your salvation. See, they did not understand Christ's relationship with believers in both soul and body. Such that Christ's bodily resurrection is our bodily resurrection. So for the tenth time in his letter, Paul sets out again to correct them. He's correcting. The resurrection is necessary for our salvation. It is not just the sign or the announcement that our sins were atoned for on the cross. It has an actual function, an actual efficacy. It is necessary for our justification. Think about this. Jesus died as our representative, as our substitute on the cross, in our place. He took the penalty for our sins upon himself and died. He suffered the wrath of God upon himself because of our sins and died. This is, this is what theologians refer to as penal substitutionary atonement. Penal because there's a penalty. Substitutionary because he died in our place. 
And yet he made atonement for sins. So when they took Christ's body down from the cross, can you picture that? They go and they take Christ's body down from the cross. What did they lay in the tomb? They laid the dead body of a condemned man in the tomb. And so Paul does not say to the Corinthians, Ah, it's okay if you don't believe in the resurrection. As long as you believe that Christ died on the cross, your sins are still forgiven. No. Paul says your sins are not forgiven. He tells them that if they do not believe in Christ's resurrection, that their faith is in vain and they remain in their sins, and they are the ones most of all to be pitied. Because Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 that Jesus was delivered up for our transgression and raised for our justification. Did you hear that? The resurrection is far more than a sign or announcement or proof that the cross worked. No, the resurrection is necessary for our justification. His condemned body becomes a righteous body when it's resurrected from the dead. It's in his resurrection that condemned Jesus becomes vindicated as righteous, Jesus. And it is in his resurrection that we who are in Christ are vindicated as righteous and no longer condemned. The resurrection is necessary for our justification. How important is the bodily resurrection of the dead? It's necessary for our justification. Without it, we remain condemned in our sins, like a dead body in a tomb. But because Christ has risen on the third day, according to the scriptures, you too, who believe in him, will be raised to newness of life because you are in him who was raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Let's pick up in verse 20. Paul goes on to say, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now we can all feel a little bit better because Paul says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection from the dead. Because Christ has certainly been raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. Hallelujah. But Paul is going to go much broader in our understanding of the resurrection. There's a bigger picture that we need to see when it comes to the bodily resurrection of the dead. Paul has shown us the terrible consequences if Christ was not raised from the dead. It's, it's a powerful illustration. You know that this is what it would be like if that happened? Now he's moving beyond the concern for our personal salvation to show us the cosmic consequences since Christ is raised from the dead. In other words, the resurrection is not only for our personal salvation. I know that's how we see it because we're really concerned about that. 
And that's how we view his resurrection. But the resurrection is also necessary for God's greater glory. The resurrection is integral to God's plan and purpose for his own glory. Paul says, because Christ has been raised from the dead, all who have been fallen asleep in Christ will all be raised from the dead. All who are in Christ shall be alive. That's bigger than just you and me. It's bigger than just us. We need a broader understanding of the resurrection that goes beyond our personal salvation. There are cosmic consequences to Christ's resurrection. And they are great. And they are glorious. And Paul uses two illustrations to show us what this looks like. First, he says Christ is the first fruits of the believer's resurrection in verse 20. What are first fruits? In the Old Testament, the first fruits of the harvest, before the rest of the harvest even appeared, the first fruits that did appear were, they were given to the Lord. They were offered to the Lord. This was to show that the whole harvest belonged to the Lord. And since they had just given him the first fruits that appeared, and they were waiting for more, they were showing their trust that the Lord would provide the rest of the harvest. Here's what we need to understand. We need to understand that it's all one harvest. The first fruits and the last fruits are all part of the same harvest, just at different times. The same is true for the resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest, and more will come from that same one resurrection harvest, just at a different time. This is how closely tied our resurrection is to Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection and our resurrection is the same resurrection at different times. His serves as the guarantee of our later resurrection. It will happen. It's God's harvest. He's the first fruits. Our resurrection is coming. And not just me, and not just us, but all who are in Christ. Paul makes this same point then by comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus. See, Christ is the second Adam who overturns what the first Adam did. Verses 21 and 22. As by a man, that's Adam in the garden, came death such that all men in Adam die, so also by a man, Jesus Christ, has come the resurrection of the dead such that all in Christ will be made alive. Paul's painting a picture of two men. Here you go. There are really, theologically, only two men in all of history. And each and every person in the history of the world is tied to one of these two men. They are the two representative men in the world. And you are counted in one of them. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, the guilt of that sin was counted towards all people. So that everyone sinned, and everyone is guilty, and everyone will die. You don't have to like it, but that's the way that the world is. But then there comes another man, a second Adam, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people in him. Every man and woman who has believed in the gospel of Jesus, dead and buried, risen and appeared, 
is no longer in Adam. They're in Christ. So all who remain in Adam will die. But all who are in Christ by faith will live. All believers are tied to Christ in his sin-atoning death and in his life-giving resurrection. This is reality. The resurrection is not some ethereal, theory-only, theological discussion. It's real, and it's concrete, and it has real and concrete consequences. If you are here this morning and you are not in Christ, then you are in Adam, and you will die, and you will go to hell, and you will be punished there forever for your sins against the holy God who gave you life. But I'm offering you something here this morning. Not me, but, but the Word of God. There is something for you here this morning, an offer that you, you can't believe. In Christ, your sins can be forgiven. <clears throat> you can come to Christ and believe what he has proclaimed and what his word says because it's true that Christ died a sin-atoning death and was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day because God raised him from the dead and he appeared to many. You have reason to believe in him. You have need to believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might escape the wrath of God which he took upon himself in your stead if you would believe in him this morning. You're not listening to me. You're listening to God. You're not listening to my authority. You're listening to the authority of the Word of God. Be resurrected in Christ. Today is the day of salvation for you if you would believe. That's the promise of God. Believe Him. Become part of God's greater resurrection plan. That's what Paul goes on to show us. We need to see the broader perspective of what Christ does in his resurrection. Where Adam failed, Christ did two things. One, he pays for the penalty for sin. And two, he completes the task. Pays for the penalty of sin that Adam started and completes the task that Adam was given. You see, Adam was given, remember our study in, in Genesis, Adam was given dominion over all creatures. He was to subdue all the earth. He was to be God's designed, designated ruler over creation. And this is what Jesus does. Adam didn't do it. Jesus does. He's fulfilling even now that responsibility that was given to Adam. Because Adam failed. And the resurrection runs through it from first fruits to last fruits. Which begs the question, well, well why is there this gap in time? Why is there Jesus raised from the dead and about 2,000 year gap in time to us now coming to saving faith and who knows, maybe another 2,000 years or more until we're resurrected from the dead? Why is there this gap here? Because the Corinthians have to be thinking, well, you know, we, we believe in Christ and a lot of people who believe in Christ have died and they haven't popped back up out of the ground. What's, what's the deal? 
what's the deal with this resurrection from the dead? I don't see it. So what's, what's happening in this time gap? Why is there such a gap in time between my spiritual resurrection when I came to saving faith in Christ and my bodily resurrection on an unknown future date? We could pick up in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority of power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. I know that gets a little, 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 little bit tongue-trippy there, uh, trying, to, trying to say all that. It's, it's actually not as confusing as it might at first look when you work your way through the grammar. God has ordained an order by which his salvation will proceed. He's a God of order. Remember the chapters that we studied on the Corinthians' disorderly worship? Remember all of the ways in which they ordered their worship disorderly, and it was chaotic, and Paul told them that God is a God of order, and so their worship of him should be done decently in order. Well, here's, here's God really emphasizing his order. He has an order in place. Well, God has established an order to, resurre- to the resurrection that brings about his great purpose of redemption and the restoration of all things. It's going to be done in an orderly manner. The first thing to happen time-wise is the resurrection of Christ the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. The second thing in these verses to happen time-wise is the resurrection of all who are in Christ. The rest of the resurrection harvest, us. Then comes the end, Paul says. This is not a time-wise end. This is a purposeful end. It's a purposeful thing, not a time thing. The Greek words tell us. It's the designed end of God. It's the purpose of God. It's the goal of everything that the Lord has set in motion. This end comes time-wise at the same time of the bodily resurrection of believers from the dead. Between the two resurrections, it says that Jesus is presently reigning. And he must. He must be the one who reigns. God, having already put all things in subjection under his feet. That's already happened. That's why Jesus is reigning in authority now. And Jesus is now at war, destroying every rule and every authority and every power that has set itself up against God as an enemy. That's what Jesus is doing right now between these two resurrections. And the last enemy that he will destroy will be death itself. And we know that Jesus can conquer death because of his own bodily resurrection. Death no longer has mastery over him. He's the perfect candidate to have mastery over death because death has no mastery over him. And he will one day soon make death his footstool. Paul is quoting Psalm 8 when he says that God will put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. What we're learning now in 1 Corinthians 15 is that it's going to be a process. That subjugation is going to be a process. And Christ is conquering his enemies through the gospel 
by saving souls one at a time. But it is an inevitable process, and it cannot fail, because God has ordained that it will take place this way. And at that time when Jesus has destroyed all his enemies and hands over the kingdom to God the Father, all of the old creation will become new creation. All the dead bodies will be resurrected as glorified bodies, miraculously recreated bodies. When all the corruption is gone and everything is new and incorruptible, that's when Jesus will give the kingdom to his Father. Now don't let this subjugation language confuse you. Nothing's changed within the triune Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equal in deity, but they're carrying out their different roles. The Father does submit all things under the Son, but he doesn't submit himself under the Son, obviously. That's kind of what that tricky language is towards the end of those verses. Nothing here contradicts the doctrine of the Trinity. When Jesus subjects himself to the Father, he does not become less than the Father. He remains a dutiful Son to his loving Father. The great and glorious purposes of God are tied up in the resurrection of Christ from the dead and the resurrection of all who are in Christ. God has ordered his triumph over sin and death in this way. There is this time gap between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection because then Jesus is at work. Jesus is at work wrecking Satan's earthly kingdom by redeeming sinners one at a time. Jesus is at work destroying all of God's enemies by redeeming sinners one at a time according to his gospel. And God is bringing all of this about a redeemed humanity and a new creation by the plan of the Father through the work of the Son by the agency of the Holy Spirit so that God is all in all. <clears throat> That's the big picture. That's the resurrection picture that we're a part of. But it is so God would receive all the glory. So that the, the earth would be filled with the glory of God as the oceans are covered. Back to Paul's response to the Corinthians in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beast in Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, and tomorrow we'll die. I remember <clears throat> one of my seminary instructors telling me that humans, if anything, are inconsistent. Now think about that for a minute, because you're saying, I'm not inconsistent. I'm, man, I am, I am a straight arrow. There are no inconsistencies in my life, in my thinking, in my reasoning, in my speech, in my behaviors. Yes, there are. Uh, we are... We are, if anything, inconsistent. It's just a reality of our humanness. Uh, even Christians, perhaps especially Christians, since we should be in the habit of addressing our inconsistencies when we come upon them. We're, we're interested in doing that. We seek to know God and we, and, we, and we want to live 
like we know God. And so when we find inconsistencies, we want to correct them. And Paul is pointing out some behaviors that are inconsistent with these Corinthians that claim that the dead are not raised in order to further persuade them of the absurdity of their error. There's some inconsistencies here. Here's a fun one. If the dead are not raised, then it's absurd for them to be baptized on behalf of the dead. I just want to throw my hands up and say, only in Corinth. Baptism of the dead, only in Corinth. How could this come about? Because, Because we only see this in Corinth. And nobody today really knows what the Corinthians are doing here. There are some ideas. Many decades ago, one one interpretation was that live believers were being baptized with the idea that they could bring about the salvation of dead unbelievers. Now, Paul would certainly condemn that. That's against the gospel. But he neither condemns nor approves of this baptism on behalf of the dead. Many commentators today speculate that this, this baptism applies to live believers being baptized on behalf of a dead believer who died before they could be baptized. It's kind of a, it's kind of a let's finish the process. Uh, he didn't have a chance to make his public profession of faith in the waters of baptism, and so somebody will do that on his behalf. And Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't say yay or nay on this. Uh, it's not a violation of the gospel. It's a suspect use of the ordinance. Uh, but that's what, that's what many, many think uh, could be the case. And, and there are even more speculative speculations as to what baptism on the behalf of, of the dead might mean. But Paul's point is clear. Paul's point is that their practice of baptizing the dead is absurd if there is no resurrection of the dead. There's no benefit. You don't believe there's a benefit. They're already dead. If their hope is in this life only and this life is over, then what's the point of baptizing somebody on behalf of those whose life is already over? This one's a little easier to understand. If, uh, if God does not resurrect believers, then why is Paul enduring extreme physical hardships for the sake of the gospel? Why is he bringing this upon himself? Why, why, is, he, why is he being shipwrecked and beaten and given the 39 lashes and, and all of the things that he suffers if there's no resurrection in the life to come? And so he, he calls his adversaries in the city of Ephesus wild beasts. I, I face the wild beasts in Ephesus. I, 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 we face persecution and the threat of death every single day. If there is no resurrection from the dead, why should we do that? We might do well to do what unbelievers do, he says. Let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's do that. And there are two uh, sources for this quote. One's cultural. It's a popular line that exhibits the skepticism of Epicurean philosophy, a philosophy of the day. Uh, If there is not resurrection from the dead, if this is the only life that we have, might as well get drunk and feed our flesh. Yeah, that's taking control of your life. Way to go. It's a very popular outlook today, isn't it? Isn't it? Why not just feed the flesh and party and have fun and do all of these things? 
The second source, and Paul knows it, is from Isaiah chapter 22, in which the Lord God pronounces judgment on Israel, on Jerusalem, and sends the Assyrian army against them. And instead of repenting, they turn to joy and revelry, saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, they're, they're skeptics. They're weighed down, they're mired down in skepticism, and they're deniers of God's mercy. All they had was the present day to get drunk in. The absurdity is not that Paul suffers for the gospel of the resurrection. The absurdity is that it's the resurrection deniers who have only today to live for. They're the ones living hopeless lives most to be pitied. Which leads to Paul's strongest rebuke in the whole letter. Picking up in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God and I say this to your shame. Paul's done correcting. He's commanding. He's commanding the church. Do not be deceived by these resurrection deniers. Separate yourself from these resurrection corruptors. You should be ashamed of yourself for giving them the time of day. They don't know God. Don't you know that bad company corrupts good morals? That, that was a popular saying at that time in Corinth. It's also a truth found in Proverbs 13 and 22. See, Paul again is fighting for the church. Don't let the leaven of these resurrection deniers corrupt the whole church. Because Christ has been raised, all the church will be raised in him. Wake up from your resurrectionless stupor. Get over your skepticism hangover and stop sinning. Kick the false teaching right out of the church. Don't act as though your body doesn't matter because you are united with Christ, body and soul. Shame on you for listening to their lies. They don't know God. And if you believe that the dead are not raised, you don't know God either. So what are we to do with this today? It ends on kind of a harsh note. What are we supposed to do with this today? Well, I want to mention just three things. Three brief things and we'll wrap up. First, we should remember that the gospel contains both the sin-atoning death of Christ and the life-giving resurrection of Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. So proclaim that Christ is resurrected and all who believe in him will be raised from the dead. You tell them that when you tell them the gospel. Second, we need to understand that the resurrection is necessary for our justification and for God's plan of redemption. His greater glory. Yes, you and I will be resurrected. But the resurrection is bigger than just your and my personal salvation. 
Christ has been resurrected and does have all authority and is reigning and is in the process of defeating all God's enemies by the power of the gospel one soul at a time. And at the end, on the last day, all the dead in Christ will rise and Christ will give the new creation kingdom to his Father and our God will be all in all. Hallelujah. And then one more thing. Because we have this sure and certain resurrection hope, we're free to take risks for the gospel. We're free to take risks for the gospel as we long for this resurrection life. We can risk loving others because you make yourself vulnerable when you love others don't you we can risk that because of the resurrection we can risk loving others we can risk serving others instead of serving ourselves we, we can survive without everything being about us we can really flourish if we would make everything about everybody else we can risk being generous in all things and in all ways. We can risk living holy lives. Because in Christ we can. Knowing that we will be made righteous in the resurrection does not mean we can take a pass on sin. Rather, it should motivate us to submit every aspect of our lives to the discipline of Christ's righteousness now. Let's pursue righteousness Let's pursue holiness now. And we can risk humbling ourselves. We can risk losing arguments and even being scoffed at. We can throw off the shame of being silent and self-protective and freely proclaim along with all who believe that there will be a bodily resurrection from the dead for those who are in Christ and that our God is all in all. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these words he has given to us this morning. Lord, we, we rejoice in the resurrection that is ours because we are in Christ. We ask, Father, that your Spirit would help us to always be rejoicing because of this, regardless of the circumstances in our life. We have resurrection joy and resurrection hope and resurrection power to live as Christ would have us to live. Help us to discipline ourselves to do it. This is our prayer in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen.